Good morning, everybody. It's good to see you guys. My name is Nate Wagner. I'm going to miss that despite myself. This is the last week for that, last week in the Ten Commandments. It's been good. I know that for you visiting from doxology, this is probably like me picking at a scab that was that close to healing and just opening it back up. So you're welcome for that. Um, The Ten Commandments have exposed us as they are supposed to do. They've shown us our hearts. They've shown us God's holiness. And as the Heidelberg Catechism reminded us, they have prepped us. They've prepared us to go to Jesus and helped us to understand how he saves us, why he had to die. And so we are at the end of this series But really, this last commandment brings us right back to the beginning. Because through the last commandment, through this commandment not to covet, you see all of the other commandments expressed. They're brought to bear in human expression through our desire, through our hearts, through what we most deeply want. And so you see that a covetous heart a restless heart, a heart that is desiring and looking at everything other than God for satisfaction, that heart is the heart that breaks all of the other nine commandments. And so it is a summary. It brings it to a close. And my hope for us is that through it, through kind of revisiting And being exposed in this way, having our hearts kind of put on the table and seeing the unhealth, seeing the sickness that is residing in our hearts, my hope is that we'll be prepared, prepared for what God wants to do. Because this kind of back and forth between the law, the Ten Commandments as expressed in law, And then the good news, the gospel of Jesus, is exactly how you're supposed to read the Bible, exactly how you're supposed to relate to God. And so we're going to learn how to do that here again this morning. I'm going to start reading in verses 1 and 2, just like we have, and then skip down to verse 17, which is the 10th commandment. And we do this because it's framing the purpose that God has in giving the Ten Commandments. The purpose is always relationship. Not relationship that's dependent on keeping them, but relationship that is grounded in what he does and then shows who he is. He reveals himself through the giving of the law. And so this is in Exodus 20, verses 1 and 2 and 17. And God spoke... All these words saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall not covet your neighbor's house, nor shall you covet your neighbor's wife, or his male servant, or his female servant, or his ox, or his donkey, or anything that is your neighbor's. Please pray with me. Father, we are restless. Our lives 
are typified by a search that seems to never have an end. And sometimes, Lord, we, we are excited by that. Sometimes it is fun to run after things with the hope that they will satisfy, it, satisfy us. And sometimes, Lord, we're tired because we have been disappointed. We've been let down time and time again. And so, Lord, your law is good because it shows us that we will never be satisfied by looking to any material thing, by looking to anything outside of you. We will never be satisfied. And Lord, your, your law is hard, because as we meditate on it, as we sit under it this morning, we see our hearts. And Lord, we ask that you would give us grace this morning, that you would shower your love in the good news of Jesus this morning, that we would cling to that, and that we would be satisfied. Lord, we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Do not covet. Covet is a strange word. It's not really a word that you use, but it's a word I'm sure that most of you probably know what it means. And it really is expressed by just having a desire for something that's not yours or that shouldn't be yours. So having a desire for something that's not yours, you can desire a good thing, something that is good to have, but God hasn't given it to you yet, but your heart wants it. And it's not just like an appreciation. It's like, oh, I really want that. Like, I'm not going to be okay until I get that. But it's also, coveting is also expressed by having something that you get in opposition to God's sovereignty, in opposition to God's law, in opposition to how he wants to give things, right? Remember Adam and Eve, they saw something, they wanted it. Was it good to want? No, because God said, the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. But they took and they ate. And that flowed out of a covetous heart. And we all know this, that coveting something, wanting something in that way, it creates an anxiety. It creates this dispositional state of being where you're anxious all the time. You ruminate on that thing. You can't stop thinking about it. It keeps you up at night. It wakes you up at night. You get up in the morning thinking about it. You want something. You desire it. And what happened is that the desire that we have, because we are meant to want, we are meant to need, but that want and that need was always supposed to resolve itself in God. And anytime we look for it to be resolved in anything other than God, it just takes us deeper into the darkness of covetousness. It takes us deeper into the cycle of sin. And you just blow through the Ten Commandments. Because ultimately, when you want something that God hasn't given you, or you have something that God doesn't want you to have, you're always breaking the first commandment you're always idolizing yourself. You're playing God. 
You've removed him. You've rejected him. You've denied his goodness. You've denied his power. You've denied his sovereignty. And he said, no, it's me on the throne. And so the Ten Commandments are meant to have that dialogue back and forth, showing us that sin is coveting and sin is idolatry, and we understand more and more about sin as we kind of start to understand more and more that dialogue of idolatry and covetousness. And I was, I was thinking about this. If you are one of the Israelites who's there at Mount Sinai, think about this experience for them. They have just been rescued out of Egypt. They were enslaved to Egypt. Egypt had gods. They were serving those gods. They were made to make bricks without straw for those gods. They were being kind of oppressed by the gods of Egypt. And they had these like old stories of Abraham, of Isaac, of Jacob, of Joseph. Stories about this other god. And they were so desperate that they were crying out. But they didn't know him. They had just heard rumors of him. Their fathers knew him. God had not revealed himself to them yet. And so when God redeems them and rescues them, pulls them out of Egypt, they're sitting on the mountain or at the base of the mountain. Moses goes up and they receive the Ten Commandments. This is the first communication they have with God. Have you guys ever been on a first date and you're really excited about that date and then the other person starts speaking and they list kind of like all of the things that annoy them about, you know, past boyfriend or past girlfriend or whatever and they're like, yeah, I can't believe they... And you're like, oh no. That sounds a lot like me. This would have, that kind of speaks to the experience that Israel's having right now. Ten commands. Have no other gods before me. Broke that one. Don't make for yourself an idol. Broke that one. Don't take my name in vain. Broke that one. Remember the Sabbath day broke that one. Honor your father and mother, broke that one. Do not murder, broke that one. Do not commit adultery, broke that one. Do not steal, broke that one. Do not lie, broke that one. Do not covet. It's like guilty, 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 guilty. When the law is revealed, our guilt is exposed. So we don't need to spend a lot of time thinking about all the ways this morning that we covet. I think you know that. I have a hunch that if you were honest with yourself, that you can identify those things that you want that, don't, that you don't have. But here is what I want to ask you, what is it that you want when you want those things? What is it that you're looking for when you're coveting that job, when you're coveting that relationship, when you're coveting the money, when you're coveting the house, when you're coveting the city, when you're coveting the stage of life? 
What are you looking for? What do you want? What did Israel want when they were looking for all of these things? It's this twisted desire. It's a desire that is in all of our hearts that we twist and we look to other things for satisfaction. So we've identified this aspect or this idea, this sin of coveting. We see how it works. Now we're going to look at the response that Israel has, that I think we just have, as we think about all the ways that we're guilty. The law is given. They realize the kind of God that they are now in relationship with and the kind of God that they're serving They know how holy he is. They know that he has just conquered all the gods of Egypt and has shown himself to be the sovereign Lord of hosts. The heavenly armies serve him. And so what do they do at the end? Verse 18, the one right after the command to covet. Now when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking... The people were afraid and trembled, and they stood far off and said to Moses, You speak to us, and we will listen, but do not let God speak to us, lest we die. Israel had just learned a lesson about their sin, about God's holiness, and they understood, and that that expression, that Confession is a confession of a sinful people. Do you see what they're doing? They're saying, we need a mediator, Moses. If God speaks to us directly, we'll just be consumed. We need you to go, and we want to serve him. And so part of being in relationship with God, as a holy God, and then learning of his holiness, learning of your sinfulness as a result, is then confessing that sin. And that is what we're to do with coveting. And I think coveting is one of these sins that's kind of like, it's a little bit respectable, right? Like it's not one that I hear, like, confessed very much as a pastor, It's not one that, on the surface, breaks up a bunch of marriages. It's not one that people get devastated and have a crisis of faith about. But it is. And Israel knew that. Because what they saw is they saw a heart that was far from God. Hearts that had to stay away. Hearts that could not come near to God. And so when you ask yourself that question, what is it that I want when I want those things? Underneath all of the stuff that accumulates on your heart over the course of your life, after all of the learning, the wrong ways to seek for satisfaction, 
underneath all of that, at its root, is a longing to be at rest with God. And this is what makes coveting so terrible. This is what makes coveting maybe worse than death. Is because coveting, it takes that longing, and then, again, you deny God's goodness. The God who created you, who knows you, who redeems you. And you say, "Mm, I don't actually think that you're good, Lord. Because you haven't given me that yet. And so I can't trust you. And so I'm going to seek to satisfy, satisfy myself over here. And what ends up happening is really well illustrated in the cycle of addictions. And something that users of heroin, people who are addicted to heroin, call chasing the dragon. Where it's like when you look for something else to satisfy you, it is kind of elusive. Users of heroin have experienced this because maybe the first or the second time or one of the first times that they've used heroin, they experience this euphoria, this escape, this overwhelming pleasure. It's exactly what they're looking for, and then it's gone. And they're like, oh, I want that again. So they go chasing it. But they call it chasing the dragon, not chasing the kitten or chasing the puppy. Because what ends up happening is that the longer that you chase after the elusiveness of that longing, the temporary nature of it, the more it starts to destroy you. And you realize that you're not chasing anything, but it's the dragon chasing you. And that's what covetous does, covetousness does in our relationship with the Lord. The most fundamental relationship that we are designed for, the most loving and secure relationship, starts to get frayed, starts to be clouded. And so what do we do? Well, thankfully... For Israel, God didn't stop speaking. He continued in relationship with them. He knew that he was making a covenant with a bunch of covenant breakers. He knew that. And he was doing it to prepare them to have himself further and more fully revealed. And you guys have also read Hebrews. And so I want to Take us back to Hebrews for a minute. Because at the end of this, you can see that they're terrified of God speaking. Like, that's enough. We can't handle anymore. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, and through whom also he created the world. He 
the sun, is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. God has spoken to us by his son. So you identify covetousness. You identify sin. You confess that sin and you come to Jesus. Because that's what God was doing all along. He was preparing his people to hear the word of his son. And that word speaks of purification of sins. It speaks of mediation of the covenant. And so now all of a sudden we are brought back into this relationship, the one that we were designed for, that we were made for, the one that satisfies our souls, our longings, the one that gives us forgiveness of sins. We come to Jesus. And we love that, don't we, in the church? We love that. And it's so sweet. And it's so good. And it's also not the end. It's the beginning. It's the beginning. The word that God speaks through his son is that invitation, come to me. Who should come to me? Matthew 11, verse 28. Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden. All you who labor and are heavy laden. All of you who are tired, come to me. It's that invitation. Well, that's what, that's what covetousness produces. It produces tiredness. You're tired of being restless. So you come to Jesus. And as we come to Jesus, sometimes we come to Jesus, we receive from him, and then we rewrite the end of the verse. And we think that Jesus says, come to me and I'll give you work. Come to me and I'll give you your best life now. Come to me and I will give you the things that you want. Come to me and I will help you, help to show you how you must earn your forgiveness that I've given you. But Jesus says, come to me, and I give you rest. Come to me, sinner. Come to me, you who covet, and I will give you rest. Man, that's hard. Rest for the restless. Rest for a people who are programmed and hardwired to need to achieve. Rest for a people who have learned how to mistrust God since they were born. Come to me, and I will give you rest. What does that look like? What does that mean? 
Jesus speaks these words as if we'll just intuitively understand them. (laughs) But man, I am tired. And then I will come to Jesus and I'll go away and I'll work again and I'll start coveting again. I'll start wanting that new stage of life. I'll start wanting a house that doesn't fall apart. I'll start wanting more room. I'll start wanting a better education. I'll start wanting a better job. I'll start wanting that relationship again. And it's because somewhere embedded in you still is that restlessness. And so this is, friends, this is the Christian life right here. This is it. There's nothing else. There is nothing else. Until we die, we are going to be coming to Jesus and forgetting that he gives us rest. And so we'll go out. We'll forget about him. We'll think that our longings can be met somewhere else. We'll think that we have to earn God's love. We'll think that "Mm, Jesus is okay, but he, eh, it doesn't really satisfy. And so when we go to Jesus, pretty soon we're in a rut. We're in a rut of living like Martha instead of Mary. If you remember that story, Jesus is there and Martha is busy and she's running around getting everything ready. And Mary is sitting at his feet, receiving, receiving rest. Friends, I think our understanding of Jesus is way too small. I think that we see him as kind of a God among many gods. I think we see him as a source among many other sources. Something maybe that we do for a little bit of time, but then we need to hook into other sources of identity, of meaning, of purpose, of value, of enjoyment, of satisfaction. But I'm going back to that verse in Hebrews, that description of the sun. The radiance of the glory of God. That's the one that we come to. And he gives us rest. So how do you have contentment in this life? How do you find that which you're looking for? Well, you continue to come back to Jesus, but root out and look for and pay attention to all those ways that when you go to Jesus, you're not actually receiving him. That your restlessness is preventing you from receiving what he gives, which is rest. Because when you have received his rest, then you're content, aren't you? You're content in sickness. You're content in health. You're content in poverty. You're content in richness. Because you have him. And when you have him, you have everything. Because he is the heir of all things. And he has given it all to you. All things belong to him. And because you're trusting him, because you're coming to him, because you believe that he died for you, that he put 
the sins that you are guilty of to death on the cross, because of that, he gives you all things. I want to leave you with this. This is hopefully a way to kind of crack into what I think we're looking at this morning. This restlessness, it's yearning, it's wanting satisfaction. But it's also happening under the context of a guilty conscience. It's happening under the context of this life where death is lurking for us all, and we have a desire to satisfy what we think we need to accomplish in this life. And so we covet everything. And to me, it, was, it reminded me so much of when I used to work in the jail and I saw what it was like for prisoners to be waiting for their sentence. It's terrifying. And the degree of the crime corresponded in some way to the degree of the punishment that they were anticipating. And so their charges had a great impact on their experience of jail. The greater they were, the more anxious they were. And so when I was thinking about this, I think somewhere all humans understand that they are living under a death sentence. And so they're anxious. They're trying to justify themselves. They're trying to make the most out of what they have because they know that that sentence is lurking. But think about this. Think if you were one of those prisoners and all of a sudden someone came to you and said, hey friend, guess what? I was sent here by the judge. He's my father. He sent me here for you. And your sentencing, he told me, you're going to get what he has given me which is a sentence of righteousness, complete and full innocence. I guarantee it. That's why I'm here. Well, A, he would probably think it was too good to be true. But if he believed it, if he believed it, he would like, okay, are you really the son of the judge? Prove that to me. If he then found out that it was the judge's son, how would that transform his experience waiting for that sentence? He would live at peace, at rest. The times that he got to spend with the judge would be transformed because he had the assurance of pardon. He had assurance that the sentence that he deserved was going to be passed on to another and that he would live now not just as forgiven, but adopted. Now you are my child. You are my son. And that's what we get when we come to Jesus. We get that assurance. And it gives us rest. And that rest, think about, think about this. Most of us in here are fairly young. We're in kind of like the prime of our lives. Hard for us to imagine that life just won't continue to go on and on and on and we'll be able to do what we're doing forever. But for all of us, there will come a day where you can no longer work. 
There will come a day where you lose every relationship that you've ever had. There will come a day where all of your stuff starts to be moth-eaten, stored away in boxes, packed up by other people. And so, would you rather be someone who has placed all of your hope in those things and then left to deal with the just crushing heartbreak of disappointment when you're like, I can't do that anymore. That's left me. That's left me. That's disappointed me. Or would you rather be the person who has been receiving rest from their Lord and Savior throughout their life, over and over again, reminded, I don't need you to do anything for me, friend. I love you. Receive my rest. Because then, disaster can strike. Then, words like cancer, words like terminal, words like chronic, they're just changing context. They're just different seasons of receiving the rest of Christ. And when a church, when the people of God get back to that, that core, that essence of the gospel, the essence of what it means to be in relationship with God, when they get back to that and they receive the rest of Christ, it's a light. It's a testimony. What's it a testimony of? Not that we're great. Not that we are moral. Not that we are anything but receivers of the rest of Christ. And that is what every single person is longing for. So friends, I know it's hard. I'm right there with you. It's not fun to learn of your uselessness. (laughs) We all want to be useful. We all want to be important. But when God speaks to us, we're reminded, no, you are a sinner but I have spoken to you in my son. Receive that and rest. Stop working. Enjoy him. Fight for that. Help one another. Remind each other of that. Show each other how resting in Christ is infinitely better than looking anywhere else. That's what Augustine meant when he said, my heart, Lord, is restless until it finds its rest in thee. And it's what the Apostle Paul wanted for the church in Ephesus. We're going to close with this. This is going to be our prayer. So I'm going to be praying this as I'm reading it. The end of chapter 3. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through the Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you being rooted and grounded in love may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length, and height, and depth, 
and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. And Lord, we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.